0: informing america's farmers and ranchers it's adams on agriculture produced by the american ag radio network here's your host mike adams hello everyone and welcome to adams on agriculture
1: merry christmas happy holidays to you thank you for joining us busy show today we're going to touch on a number of different topics of course the farm bill signed yesterday and we're going to talk with someone who was at the white house for that signing ceremony Uh, Overshadowing that somewhat, of course, is the looming government shutdown. We're waiting to see what happens in the Senate. Other topics we're going to cover today antibiotic use in the pork industry we're going to talk with the chief veterinarian for the national pork producers council liz wagstrom to get an update on that and and uh, give us an idea just uh, where are we with antibiotic use as that's become more and more a hot topic and in the news she'll give us an update paul neifer cpa with clifton larson allen will join us with some uh, tax tips here at the end of the year and we'll talk with donnell rehagen president ceo of the national biodiesel board as things not looking too good for getting that biodiesel tax incentive here at the end of the year. We'll get an update on that a little bit later on. But we're going to start things off with the signing of the Farm Bill yesterday at the White House. One of those in attendance was Mick Henderson. He's the general manager of Commonwealth Agri-Energy LLC in Kentucky and a board member for the Renewable Fuels Association. Mick, thanks for joining us. Tell us about your experience yesterday.
2: Well, good morning, Mike. I'm I'm and Merry Christmas. I uh, I'm still recovering. That's a, that was a long day, but uh, Washington D.C. is uh, is as interesting as ever. And you know, at the White House, it was a who's who in agriculture watching watching that take place. You know, it's a, it's a ceremonial sort of event. It's the culmination of a lot of hard work between the House and the Senate and the the different agencies, USDA and and it, it just culminates in the president getting to give a speech and and uh, do the formal signing, and and then you get, like I say, you, you get to see everyone that's had a hand in getting it across the finish line, and those that are um, intimately involved. And and I, I was honored and privileged to be able to represent our industry there. The uh, The the group from cattlemen to uh, row crop to to, um, just every faction of agriculture was
3: there.
1: Yeah, it was good to see agriculture so well represented there in the national spotlight. Although, as I said, when you watched it from afar, and I'm interested to see how you felt right there at the scene... From afar, it seemed to be overshadowed by the looming government shutdown and that debate and that struggle that's going on. Did you feel that there, or did you feel that there was an emphasis on the signing of the Farm Bill?
2: As you watch these things happen, when a president gets a podium and and he gets the attention of the press and, you know, a worldwide audience, he can talk about whatever he wants to talk about. So, you know, he kind of starts off with, Farm bill is why we're here, but he immediately segues into things that he doesn't have done. You know, it's the the job's already done for the farm bill. All he had to do is go sit at the table, sign it, and hand out his pins. But the the rest of his work, uh, in fact, I think he had a little meeting with um, with Defense Secretary um, Mattis shortly before. In fact, he was probably an hour, hour and a half late because of so. It's not the only thing on his plate, so he wants to talk about everything else and what else needs to get done, and whether it's a government shutdown or uh, uh, the the uh, other couple of bills he's he's holding Congress's feet to the fire before they leave town. There's a little tension in the room, but you know those that are there for farm bill reasons see that as a sideshow. You know our our work's not done, but this piece got done.
1: You know, it's interesting, and you uh, you referred to this, but I have been in the White House for a big ceremony and where the president's involved, and it is hard to describe that electricity in the air that you feel when you are in attendance for something like that.
2: Well, I got there early, and I, in fact, kind of hang out with, hung out with staff a little bit, the, the White House staff that were organizing and uh, they got me the best seat in the house. I, I got a set second row, no one in front of me, and there I was twenty feet from the president. And so he'd be talking, and he talks to people. He'd look right at me, and one time I kind of give him the thumbs up, and he gives me a little smirk. And it's, it's as real as it gets. You don't get that kind of feedback on TV. Right. <laughs> but right. but it's uh, but it's a humanizing thing to to see that all happen. You know, it, it feels a little disjointed with the press and all the cameras. And, and the, um, the pomp and circumstance, but uh, it's real people. They're humans just like us. Everybody in there puts their pants on one leg at a time.
1: We're talking with Mick Henderson. He's general manager of Commonwealth Agri-Energy LLC in Kentucky and board member for the Renewable Fuels Association. He was in attendance at the White House yesterday for the Farm Bill signing ceremony. Mick, I have to ask you here as we close out the year, uh, these are challenging times for the ethanol industry. Your thoughts of where we're at right now and looking ahead to 2019?
2: Well, you know, I, I, was, I was selected to, to represent ethanol in particular, but our business is in fact 100% farmer-owned, a 3,500-member co-op called the Hopkinsville Elevator Company, and, and we're an integral part of agriculture. It's, it's in our name. If if we didn't have the farm bill, there's certain uh, aspects of farming that become very very difficult. Well, we are uh, we are an example of what still needs to be done. Early October, when uh, when the president authorized the um, EPA uh, to to uh, uh, authorize E15 year-round. We need that. That's a domestic market opportunity that our industry desperately needs. And when I say desperate, yeah, we're uh, we're mostly upside down. I'd say most plants across the country upside down, and some of us, whether it's logistics or bank uh, loans or otherwise, are uh, are in shutdown economics. Those things happen in a mature industry, and and I don't think we're fledgling anymore. We, we're we're competing with the big boys. And sometimes that means. Um, 10%, 25% of the industry has to get digested by the rest of us. That's not pretty. That's just how it works. But what do we see on the other side? What do we see on the long term? We need E15 domestically. We need an opportunity to continue to be part of the, the uh, fuel supply in America. But, uh, well, the tariffs in China are, are in microcosm. What's wrong with uh, exports? But we're still... Sub- we're still shipping more fuel ethanol than we've ever shipped. Well, over 1.4 billion gallons we've shipped since October. So exports are going to be a big part of it. The world needs ethanol, not just U.S. Not just at 10%, but we've proven that works here, and it's it's a higher percentage in Brazil. It needs to be a part of fuel across the globe. Look at the skies of Beijing and, and, and see that they don't need air pollution, reduction from tailpipe emission, and ethanol can solve that quickly. They're going to use ethanol. They should use U.S. ethanol. So it's going to take all the balls in the air for uh, for our industry to work, but those of us that have been in it for a while still see that, um, that light at the end of the tunnel. It's an it's a, um, um, up-and-down market. It's never going to be constant. You can't guarantee it. But you've got to be in it for the long haul.
1: Mick, thanks for being with us, sharing with us your experiences yesterday at the White House. Look forward to seeing you in February at the National Ethanol Conference. Thanks, Mick.
2: I'll be there. Thanks, Mike.
1: All right. RFA board member Mick Henderson. Up next, Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council here on AOA.
4: Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network.
5: Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna go grocery shopping, cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't, because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
3: I can't believe he found them.
6: He seems sorry.
3: We very clearly told him not to look up there. I'm
6: honestly impressed that he was able to do it.
3: Right? What well, did he balance on that big chair? Or... Yeah,
6: I mean, I guess he'll just know what his gifts are this year.
3: I really thought we had hidden them well.
6: If they can find their presence, they can find a gun.
3: 911, what is your emergency?
5: Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and N Family Fire.
3: Do you need a car? Been shopping only to be turned down because of bad credit? low credit, no credit, bankruptcy, or divorce. Guess what? Today's your lucky day because now you can buy a car, truck, or SUV, just about any vehicle. It's true. Bad credit doesn't matter. No credit doesn't matter. Bankruptcy or divorce, it just doesn't matter. As a matter of fact, your job is your ticket to your new vehicle. We're Auto Credit Express and we've helped thousands of people just like you.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams.
1: Antibiotic use in the livestock industry continues to be in the news. Some of the headlines uh, misleading. So we wanted to get a, a factual look at where we're at in the pork industry. Joining us now is the Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council, Liz Wagstrom. Liz, thank you for joining us. Give us an overview of where we're at in the pork industry when it comes to antibiotic use today as it compares, say, the last few years?
7: Good morning. Yes, we've been working very hard, actually, over the last couple decades to really have our farmers and veterinarians become aware of the issue of antibiotic resistance and consider how they can best be good stewards of these valuable tools for both animal and human health. So um, with um, the implementation of our stewardship Portion of the Pork Quality Assurance Program, or I'll say PQA because it rolls off the tongue easier. Um, we've had about 15 years now where we've really concentrated on how to be good stewards with, with antibiotics. And then, of course, we all prepared for January 1st of 2017 when the rules changed and we could no longer use antibiotics for growth promotion and other antibiotics needed more veterinary oversight. And so this week, we got the first reports really based on nationwide information after that change in in January of 2017. And what we saw is that um, we were down about 35% in uh, the estimated swine use of antibiotics just between 2016 and 2017. And then what I thought was really interesting is if you go back to 2009, just looking at total antibiotic sales, um, volume of medically important antibiotics is down about twenty-eight percent. With you know, we've got a much larger swine herd, and so looking at those volume drops is pretty impressive.
1: All right. So if if we can reduce those levels, uh, what is what is that a result of, better management, different uh, ways of approaching animal health care, or, or what has led to that to where we can still keep our, uh, our, our swine herd healthy but reduce those levels to that amount?
7: Yep. Yeah, and that's a great question because it's not just about volume. It's about um, how we use antibiotics, what's the motivation for using them, um, and under what kind of oversight and care do we use them. So we know that there was a volume drop due to no longer being able to use growth-promotion antibiotics, and, and we had thought that they may have some sort of um, disease prevention activity, and we're worried that when that quit, we may actually see more sick animals. Um, that's fortunately not really happened. I think we taking better care of our pigs now. We... Um, have better facilities, we were more careful about the all-in, all-out, keeping them in in, um, groups that are the same age and the same immune status. So so a lot of the production things we are doing um, are to prevent the need to use antibiotics, and I think we're showing that we're being successful at that.
1: The headlines, though, whenever the story comes up about antibiotic use in the livestock industry, the headlines are, are often frightening uh, and is, uh, you know, uh, alarming to uh, consumers. Uh, what do you want people to know other than just the f- what you've told us, that the levels are actually lower than maybe they are led to believe? What else should we know about this
7: issue? Well, I think what's really interesting to me was that when these reports came out this week, we heard nothing from the consumer advocacy groups who had, um, with the rule changes in 2017, had said, Farmers will continue to use antibiotics as growth promotion, but they're going to call it disease prevention. Well, I think we proved very clearly that that is not happening. But the most important thing uh, over all of these years of work is that I think now that people are taking good care of their animals to try to prevent the need to use antibiotics. When they do need to use them, it's focused at a disease um, challenge. It's with a veterinary oversight, and it's being evaluated and reevaluated for does this, does this use need to continue. So, um, just like doctors and, and hospitals are trying to tighten up how they use antibiotics, we've done the same in, in the pig industry.
1: We're talking with the chief veterinarian of the National Pork Producers Council, Liz Wagstrom. Liz, uh, what are your thoughts on the significance of the vaccine bank being funded in the new farm bill?
7: You know, that was a big win for animal agriculture. Um, It it not only was funded for this farm bill, but it's also um, part of the baseline now. So for subsequent farm bills, it is in there, and you would have to actively go in and try to take it out. So it's a continuous stream of funding. Um, The other thing that was... it of note was not only did we get vaccine bank funding, but also state prevention grants, um, and the the National Animal Health Laboratory Network are in that stream of funding. But it does authorize the secretary to ask for more if needed. And so we've got that authorization language that said if this isn't enough, because it it was not as much as we had asked for, um, the secretary can ask for authorizations to to get more. So, um, you know, we can always do more with more, but this is a great start.
1: What can you tell us about the outbreak of African swine fever in China and how big a threat of that is there that that could spread to the U S
7: yeah, it's, um, a very interesting situation there. And in fact, I was just on the phone, um, r- arranging a trip in a couple weeks to get over to China myself. It has, um, spread very quickly across china it has we understand it has hit both backyards small farms as well as commercial farms and so you know there are some threats you know we've been talking with customs and border protection to make sure that you know they've got the beagle brigade out on flights coming in from china that they're trying to make sure people aren't bringing in illegal meat or other products as well as you know working with the american feed industry association and the international feed association to um, look at how we can assure the safety of feed and feed ingredients that that we bring into the united states so it's been a a 24 7 effort among the industry organizations working closely together with the feed association um, to try to do everything we can to keep the keep the u.s swine herd safe
1: but there's always a certain level of vulnerability right we try to reduce that level as much as possible but uh there's always a risk
7: there is definitely a risk and we're we're urging producers to be at heightened awareness so that if they see animals that you know are sick african swine fever looks like not unlike what a uh, a salmonella a bad salmonella might look like so it's hard to say um, this animal died of African slime fever. So, so we're really urging producers and veterinarians to have heightened awareness um, to do that extra diagnostics. If they see something that doesn't look right, to consider calling in a foreign animal disease investigator. And so um, everybody needs to pull together, whether it's the, the handlers of the beagles at airports or whether it's farmers on our farm. We need to do everything we can to keep our herds safe.
1: You know, all this that we have discussed, to me, highlights, again, the the importance of our veterinarians across the country. And we know this is at a time where the need is great, but uh, the number of veterinarians, uh, that's the challenge. Uh, We need more veterinarians across the country, don't we?
7: It's a challenge. Um, I think we have a mismatch. So we have a lot of veterinarians coming out of school who want to practice small animal medicine, maybe in larger cities. And when you get to the rural areas, when you get into a food animal specialty, um, that's where we have, have a harder time um, having enough veterinarians.
1: And that relationship between producer and veterinarian, whether it's with antibiotic use or whatever that may be, that is uh, has always been an important relationship, but I think even more so today.
7: It's absolutely vital and You know, when people ask me why I wanted to be a swine veterinarian, it was just the diversity of what you do. We have veterinarians who, you know, help um, design and build truck washes so that they can get proper biosecurity of trucks coming into the farms. You have veterinarians doing economic analysis of of how production changes will affect not only health but economics. And so our veterinarians really have a a wide tool – box of of, um, activities they work on, and and they're part of the management, should be considered part of the management of the farms.
1: And I really think so often people that are not livestock producers don't think that much about the need for large animal veterinarians, but I I always look at it as part of national security, and I think a lot of people don't understand or realize how devastating a major animal disease outbreak would be in this country and that's why it's so important to to have these veterinarians working with our producers across the country well as always liz thank you very much i know you're very busy appreciate your time and giving us an update on these issues thank you so much thank you mike liz wagstrom chief veterinarian for the national pork producers council joining us here on aoa Adams on agriculture stay with us
3: What does Meals on Wheels do? They deliver meals and smiles to homebound seniors. But Meals on Wheels does something else. They turn a volunteer's lunch break into a meaningful experience.
8: As small and as simple as the relationship is between a volunteer and a client of Meals on Wheels, it's really so impactful. I never thought that five minutes could make so much difference in the lives of two people, but it has.
3: Drop off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at americaletsdolunch.org. That's americaletsdolunch.org. Brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council.
4: Did you know You can listen to the latest podcast of Adams on Agriculture or hear the top news and week in review from the American Ag Network on your Amazon Alexa.
9: Play my flash briefing.
4: Use the Alexa app to search for the podcast you want to play. Search for Adams on Agriculture to learn about the issues affecting agriculture each weekday. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Or you can search for the American Ag Network.
1: This is the American Ag Network Week in Review. I'm Sabrina Hill.
4: Stay up to date on agriculture with the sound of your voice on your Amazon device. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain traders will be watching Congress today to see if a government shutdown begins. The House passing a measure last night to fund the government with Money for the president's border wall, something that Democrats in the Senate will almost certainly block. Senate Republicans meeting with the president at the White House on this Friday morning. If the government shuts down, USDA may not be able to produce its weekly export sales report or other reports until the shutdown ends. The president saying Friday a closure would drag on for a very long time. In soybean futures on this Friday, we are trending seven to eight cents lower. Minor chart support on the January contract seen at 8.86 and then 8.82 and a half. The 20-day moving average now becomes resistance at nine dollars and a quarter cent. For corn on the downside, major support at 3.67 and a quarter, the low from November 26th. An hour into this Friday trade session, we're near unchanged at 375 and a half, up a quarter of a cent. For the wheats, backpedaling 9 to 10 lower in Chicago wheat, 6 to 7 lower in Kansas City, penny and a fraction lower in Minneapolis spring wheat. For livestock at the Merck in live cattle futures, we're firm to 37 cents higher in the nearby contracts. The December 1st cattle on feed report turned out to be pretty much in line with expectations. Cattle and calves on feed for slaughter totaling 11.7 million head on December 1st, up 2% from the same time last year. near unchanged in feeder cattle an hour into Friday's trading session. Lean hog futures, February, up 32 at 62.70. On Wall Street, the Dow up 371 points. February crude oil futures in New York, up 21 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture, presented by the American Ag Network. I'm Rusty Halverson.
6: and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit.
0: Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, as we approach
1: the end of the year, we think also about taxes, what changes have been made, what do we need to keep in mind as we move forward. We bring in now Paul Neifer, CPA with Clifton Larson Allen. Paul, thanks for joining us.
2: You're, you're welcome. Uh, it's that time of the year.
1: Yep. Yeah, well, it sure is. Well, kind of bring us up to date. What are some changes, some things that we need to keep in mind?
2: Well, actually, I just posted on our, our blog yesterday something that we just finally realized uh, we've been waiting for some guidance from the IRS. We didn't get any guidance, but we just realized that for those farmers that are selling their products to a cooperative, there's this transition uh, related to that uh, deal. And what we found out is those farmers that sell to a cooperative, they're not able to use any of that income that occurs due to those sales through the year-end of the cooperative in 2018. A lot of cooperatives have it like an April 30th or May 31 year-end, so those sales that that farmer has to that cooperative from January 1 through April 30th or May 31, we can't use that in calculating that new Section 199A deduction, so a lot of our tax planning that we've done for some of our farmers are now a little bit out of whack, so we've got to go back and... uh, recalculate that. Now, for a lot of farmers, they're not making a lot of money anyway, so it may not be that huge of a deal, but it is certainly something to find out a little bit late in the game. The IRS was supposed to have some guidance out, and they're still not having any guidance, but uh, at least this is our reading of the grain glitch fix that was done back in March.
1: Yeah, that's been an issue throughout the year, hasn't it?
2: it? It's definitely been an issue. I mean, we've gotten guidance, proposed regulations, and some of that, quite a bit of that, was actually helpful for with farmers. We know that their uh, leasing operations, the land rental, uh, being leased over to their farm, that's now going to qualify for that deduction. We weren't sure about that, but then the final regulations were no. We know that they're at the OMB. That the OMB has got 45 days to review it and get it back to the IRS. So. We're still waiting on that. We may not even have that before year end. That might go all the way into the end of January before we get that back. So this tax season is going to be brutal.
1: I was going to say, the IRS uh, does not follow always the same calendar we do as far as getting the information that's needed. Now, they follow certain deadlines that they expect you to meet, but they don't always get that information out very, very uh, quickly, do they?
2: Well, it was sort of interesting. Last week, I, I had done a blog post, and I think a couple other people did. In the publication, the tax, the Farmers Tax Guide, uh, they sort of had an error on depreciation. They were saying all farm equipment is now five years. Well, no, it's for new farm equipment, is five years. Used farm equipment still remains at seven years. So they added, a, or they sent out a little addendum on Monday. I think it was Monday of this week, saying that. Well, also, they sort of messed up on the Uh, 1031 exchange side they're saying that you can't take section 179 or bonus on the trade-in value well there is really no trade-in value anymore you have to recognize a gain on selling that equipment so uh, you know you you should be allowed to take a full section 179 so they're still getting confused and also we've heard on nol carrybacks for farmers they don't know if it's allowed not allowed whether it's two years or five years so they're still learning the law too just like us
1: It gets confusing. We're talking with Paul Nefer, CPA with Clifton Larson Allen. Paul, what else are you advising your clients right now?
2: I I think the one big advice, it really isn't necessarily dealing with something you have to do before you're in, but something they need to be aware of. A lot of farmers try to file by March 1 because if they file and pay the tax by March 1, they don't have to make any estimated tax payments during the year. We're recommending for almost all of our farmers this year they need to make that uh, estimated tax payment on January 15th because uh, we're not sure if the IRS is even going to be ready to allow us to file by March 1. I, I would hate to file and then have to file an a minute return. Those are not fun to do. And, and economically, especially with the interest rate now being 6% that the IRS charges, uh, economically it, it almost makes more sense to make that smaller payment in January and then make the final payment on April fifteenth, we got an extra forty-five days to file the return, and by the time you factor in time value of money, it's either a wash or you're actually better off, um, you know, making that payment in January and then the final payment in April. So th- that's certainly one thing I'm recommending for almost all of our farmer clients to do.
1: Any other big changes this year?
2: Yeah, the, the other big change is in the past farmers could purchase equipment year in and take what's called bonus depreciation. Now, in the previous laws, they could only take bonus on 50% of new equipment. The new rule is beginning in eight, well, actually late last year, September last year. Farmers can now take 100% on new and used any farm asset that is depreciated. So, buildings, you know, hog barns, dairy parlors, even if they build them or buy them uh, from another neighbor, uh, all of that is 100% deductible. But they got to be careful because if they create too large of a loss, that creates some issues. So there's just definitely more planning that needs to be done this year in order to uh, come up with the optimized taxable income. We're not trying to eliminate taxable income. A lot of farmers try to eliminate it. We're trying to optimize, take advantage of the credits in the 10% and the 12% bracket.
1: That's why I always shake my head when you hear about let's let's simplify, clarify (laughs) the tax codes. That never seems to happen.
2: They stopped using the word simplification a long time ago on this new tax law, and, and you know now now we hear that uh, you know Trump really isn't interested in the middle class tax cut. You know he he didn't really win the election on that, so uh, you know let's let's go on to something else. And you know whether it's building the border wall or whatever it is, uh, you know it it'll be interesting next year to see what happens.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of talk, and of course there has been some tax reform. How is that? viewed for agriculture positive negatively here this year
2: you know when i first saw the bill come out uh, somebody asked me to give it a grade and i said i would give it a b plus for ag i'm probably now dropping it down to more of a b minus i mean i think it's still positive uh, but it's not as positive as we originally thought and, and there's certain sweet spots for you know, for a farm family that's got three or four kids and they're what I call a middle-class farmer, you know, let's say they're making $150,000, uh, $200,000, they are going to see a pretty substantial tax reduction. I mean, in some cases they could see their taxes go down by 30 or 35 40%. Uh, we run some numbers. But for other farmers, especially if in a state like Minnesota or Iowa, it's got a high state income tax rate and they don't get bonus and they don't get Section 179 and so on, you know, their their tax bill this year might actually go up, not down. So, you know, overall, I, I'd say it's still positive, but certainly not as positive as we originally thought when it first was passed a year ago.
1: Some other ag-related issues: we were hoping for a tax extenders package, uh, uh, hoping for a tax incentive for biodiesel. That that doesn't look like that's going to happen this
2: year not this year you know they're continuing to talk that you know they'll try to push it through sometime next year of course that's always painful because then the IRS has got to go back and you know redo their uh, redo their computers uh, also there's a lot of talk about a technical corrections bill maybe they'll combine those together uh, the um, joint uh... tasks committee essentially came out yesterday with about a five hundred page um, Trios on the tax bill itself, and I think they identified over 75 technical corrections that should be done. Uh, but you know, we also know that likely the Democrats aren't eager uh, to do that. You know, the Republican or the Republicans weren't eager to help on Obamacare. You know, I don't think the Democrats are really eager to help the Republicans uh, fix the tax law that the Democrats think the Republicans messed up. So uh, uh, we'll see what happens.
1: Which. Probably will lead to more uncertainty, and when we talk at this time next year, it'll be more of the same as far as that's concerned, right?
2: Yeah, I I think, uh, you know, like I say, we're still, uh, the IRS still hasn't issued final forms. They haven't issued final instructions. Uh, I, I reviewed the instructions on 199A yesterday, and they don't even go into the detail as to, you know, what income qualifies, what income doesn't qualify. You know, they sort of put it in the proposed regulations, but most tax preparers, most farmers, they're not going to read the regulations. You know, they're going to look at the instructions, and if the instructions doesn't cover it, uh, you know, they're going to get confused. So it's just definitely going to be a mess.
1: Any big uh, warnings? You know, be sure you don't do this when it comes to taxes.
2: Well, I, I yeah, I think it, you got to be careful. You know, the, the perception by a lot of farmers is they have these net operating loss carry forwards, and that's going to completely offset their income. You know, based on what we saw yesterday, we think that's correct. But then the IRS doesn't have to follow what the Joint Tax Committee sort of put out, so we're still not sure on that. Uh, we've also seen uh, where a lot of farmers automatically assume that they're going to get this twenty percent deduction based on their net farm income but they got a lot of other deductions that drop their income down so the the deduction that they're going to get not going to be as large i, I think the key thing uh, they definitely need to be meeting with their tax advisor you know this year more than almost any other year and then you know, they should meet every year but uh... uh this this is so complicated again We just found out a major provision yesterday that uh, was buried in the fine print. I mean, it was definitely buried. uh, But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, if you just automatically assume you're going to get this deduction, in a lot of cases that's not the the reality.
1: Don't assume. Check and be sure, right?
2: Exactly. We we know what happens when you assume. I won't say it on the air, but, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing.
1: All right, Paul, as always, thanks for the updates, and as uh, more information comes in from the IRS, we'll check back with you here after the first of the year and get another update, all right?
2: And, and definitely I'll get it posted on the blog, so if anybody wants to go to farmcpatoday.com, uh, they can sign up for it or just check it out once a week, and I usually post three times a week or more.
1: Very good. Happy holidays, Paul. Thank you.
2: Same to you, Mike. Thanks.
1: Paul Niefer, CPA with Clifton Larson Allen. Up next, we'll talk with the president and CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. Stay with us on AOA, Adams on Agriculture.
8: inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs, and isn't that worth parting with the leftover tar from your 80's cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
0: Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. Category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to invent help. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call one 800 213 Forty five fifty six. That's one-eight hundred-two one three forty-five fifty-six. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, one-eight hundred-two one three-four five-five six.
3: I can't believe he found them.
6: He seems sorry.
3: We very clearly told him not to look up there. I'm
6: honestly impressed that he was able to do it.
3: What right? did he balance on that big chair? Or... Yeah,
6: I mean, I guess he'll just know what his gifts are this year.
3: I really thought we had hidden them well.
6: If they can find their presence, they can find a gun. Nine
3: one one. What is your emergency?
5: Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at nfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and N Family Fire. Okay, men. This is your time. Maybe you didn't choose this, but you're here now. You're gonna go out there and be an all-star caregiver. It's up to you. So what are you gonna do? You gonna go grocery shopping? Cook, clean, be there emotionally and physically. You gotta dig deeper. Drive them to physical therapy, doctor's appointments. Don't you forget about the pharmacy. I know you won't. Because that's what caregivers do. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. This is your time to show the world, your family, and yourself that you're tougher than tough. Now go out there and be the best caregiver this world has ever seen. Caregiving is tougher than tough. Find the care guides you need at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council.
4: Information America's
0: farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Earlier in the week, we talked
1: with Donnell Rehagen, President and CEO of the National BioDiesel Board, about the importance to the biodiesel industry of getting the biodiesel tax incentive in a tax extenders package and getting it passed this year. Donnell, uh, here at the end of the week, it doesn't uh, doesn't look promising, does it?
9: Well, Mike, uh, probably not. Uh, you know, I was I was thinking this morning. You know, this is uh, like Yogi Bear, right? Deja vu all over again. So here we are talking again. But you're right. It's uh, it's probably quite a bit of a long shot right now. The Congress has obviously set themselves up to be preoccupied with just simply trying to keep the government open. So um, there's a narrow, narrow window, but uh, probably an unlikely window.
1: So if it goes into 2019, you'll keep up your efforts uh... one of your champions would be senator grassley uh... what do you see as, uh, as far as the effort in twenty nineteen to get it done
9: well senator grassley has been a long-time champion and we're very fortunate to have him as well as a you know a handful of other senators and representatives that will you know, literally lay down on the track for for us and our industry and so senator grassley is uh... taking over the reins of the senate finance committee um, so that's a very powerful position, and one that kind of equates in my kind of in my small mind to the guy that gets to hold the checkbook for the Senate and uh, so he's going to be in a position that he'll have a a little bit more influence than he has in the past on issues like ours and uh, we'll be working very closely with Senator Grassley to pick up where we left off here again, we contend this is an unfinished business uh, unfinished business for twenty eighteen that now looks like it's going to get kicked over into twenty nineteen so uh, we have a very uh, very able and capable and passionate supporter of ours in a great position, and we'll be working hard alongside.
1: Yeah, but the the bad news is you ha- your industry has to start another year with the uncertainty of not having that tax incentive and not knowing how it's going to play out as far as if and when it's going to come back and for how long.
9: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of people may not realize, but uh, the beginning of calendar years become a very important time for uh, producers to secure long-term contracts for their products, and our industry is no different. Uh, we'll be a month from now. We'll be in San Diego, California, uh, for our annual National BioDiesel Conference and Expo, and that conference uh, has turned into a big business meeting for our industry. There is a lot of closed-door, you know, uh, meetings going on between between producers and buyers um, and marketers and so on. And so, again, they'll likely be going to that meeting unsure whether 2019, much less 2018, uh, you know, will have access to that uh, tax credit. So you can imagine how difficult pricing products and trying to figure out contractual terms are when something as big as that uh, component is up in the air.
1: Yeah, I'll be at your national meeting uh, next month, and uh, we'll look forward to talking again at that time. In the meantime, though, uh, Donnell, we know as 2018 closes, a lot of ethanol plants are struggling. Uh, what about the uh, biodiesel facilities?
9: Well, you know, there's, the markets are, are very different. Um, you know, the, there's some pockets uh, of uh, demand. Primarily West Coast, you know, through the low carbon fuel standard that California has in place, that's kind of made its way up through Oregon and Washington into British Columbia, and then also the e- the northeastern markets are very uh, aggressive when you look at home heating oil as well as on road. So, um, we we probably had a little different environment than the ethanol industry has as far as how our product makes its way out to the marketplace and kind of where it settles. And so, uh, our our production numbers have been very strong. Uh, this year in 2018 and that's something that we welcome with so that's what we're here for is to help the domestic industry grow and 2018 has been a banner year
1: yeah you've throughout the history of biodiesel it's been some niche markets and some of those have really grown as you said the heating uh, market that has certainly grown in parts of the country uh, what about in the in the transportation system like with school buses and and some of those niche markets are those growing or are you holding your own or how, how are those doing?
9: Yeah, you know, they they kind of grow in more of a a regional or, you know, a demographic basis of uh, where there are communities and regions of the country that are looking to maybe reduce their carbon footprint. Um, so when you talk about schools specifically, you're dealing with a lot of school boards and school districts, and so it's a little bit different. But from a regional standpoint, you know, they may be utilizing biodiesel in those school buses because that's the product that the uh, the local region demands as they uh, try to attack their low-carbon fuel goals. So, you know, I think we've got a, a great road ahead of us, no pun intended, uh, for the biodiesel industry as we are a great, great solution to the, the parts of the country who, who see the future and see the need to reduce the carbon that's in the fossil fuels that they are using for transportation purposes now.
1: You have a number of raw materials that can be used to make biodiesel, soybeans being the primary one, uh, but are we seeing more development of a, a number of uh, different uh, uh, raw materials used in biodiesel production?
9: We are. You know, Mike, we have seen growth in every category of feedstocks, uh, I mean, including soybean oil, but also used cooking oil, animal fats, and then, of course, you know, the corn oil that uh, is coming out of the uh, ethanol production is now going into, uh, being turned into biodiesel as well. So um, we've, we've been working hard to expand the availability of biodiesel all around the region. Of course, many of those feedstocks are more regionally based, right? You're going to have more restaurant oils available in metropolitan areas and less so in rural areas. But in the rural areas, you're going to have more of the animal fats and more of the soybean oils. And so uh, it's one of the things that makes us proud to be part of this industry. It's a very innovative folks that we have, and the uh, flexibility that our product has by by, uh, the designation of feedstock uh, provides a lot of flexibility to our producers to use regional and local products to make the biodiesel they sell around the country
1: yeah I think that's a big part of your story that doesn't get told enough and not not enough people realize it
9: well, you're absolutely right, and it's certainly a it's certainly a big seller for the policymakers as well because uh, as your listeners know uh, there's a smaller and smaller footprint of uh, of lawmakers in washington d c who know a lot about the agricultural environment so uh, we're able to expand the uh, awareness of our product by a variety of feedstocks that are maybe more common to the areas some of these lawmakers come from. So uh, it's allowed us to expand our footprint across almost the entire United States where there's a uh, connection to to nearly every congressional district for biodiesel production.
1: Well, Donnell, thanks for being with us. Uh, See you next month at your national meeting, okay?
9: Mike, looking forward to it. Merry Christmas. Thank you.
1: You too. Donnell Rehagen. President, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. With that, we wrap it up again to all of you. A very merry Christmas and a wonderful, safe, happy holiday season, everyone. Thanks for joining us on AOA, Adams on
7: Agriculture.